0: Let's say I have a bunch of anxiety, but I don't feel comfortable, or I don't feel empowered to express my anxiety, or I just don't know how to. So what I do, as opposed to feeling the anxiety and and letting it out, I just hold it in my body and I store it and I kind of just bottle it up. So over the years of doing this with anxiety, I start to develop physical symptoms. And those can be a whole range of things. They can just be as far as lower back pain, abdominal tightness all the way up to Crohn's disease or lupus, even cancer can can develop from holding emotion in and being stressed out and not expressing it, not letting it out and not dealing with it.
1: Hello, and welcome back to the Mindful Belly Don't Eat Your Feelings podcast. I'm your host and health coach, Ellie Rome. So for those of you new to this podcast, welcome. I'm Ellie. I was a chemical engineer, but had a massive sugar addiction. I was food addict, binge ate, and numbed out with food for the majority of my life. I felt completely out of control when it came to food and felt like 90% of my thoughts were consumed, like when am I going to get sugar again or willpower trying to force myself not to eat, and then I would binge, and then I would spend time thinking about the guilt and the shame around that, and it was just like so consuming and so draining, so to be able to get free from that was one of the most massively transformative things in my life. And that's why I became a coach to help other people do that. And that's what the purpose of this podcast is, is to provide you tools for healing. And so many of the foods I was eating, I didn't realize were causing so much inflammation in my body. I went to six different doctors, none of them who asked me what I was eating because I was experiencing thyroid issues. I was experiencing gut issues. I was experiencing horrible ADHD symptoms like brain fog, chronic fatigue, and just felt like my body was breaking down. It wasn't until I switched my diet and what I was eating that really started me on the path of of this healing. And that's what I want to be able to provide for you. This is so much more than just the food piece. It is the emotional piece. You know, food addiction and, and sugar addiction is, is similar to other addictions, substance abuse. And a lot of it is numbing out from things that we don't want to face, from discomfort, from past trauma. And underlying subconscious programs that may be driving binge type eating behaviors. So, if you have this story from childhood that you had to be perfect, otherwise, you'd get in trouble, or that you had to be perfect because you would be ridiculed or embarrassed. So, you created this perfectionist, people pleasing type story. And so, you burn yourself out, you never put yourself first. And then that manifests into you having patterns of basically no boundaries exhausting yourself. And then you end up running yourself ragged all day long. People-pleasing, never really expressing your truth. So you're stuffing your feelings down. You're stuffing your needs down. And then at night, nighttime comes, you're exhausted. You have like no energy left to make good conscious decisions for yourself. So you're bingey at night and eat a bunch of things that you know aren't good for you, but you just like can't seem to make the good choices that you know, you should quote unquote should make. And it's just like this rabbit hole. And that's a very common theme I see. And so that could be this, the root being from this, uh, you as a small child feeling shame or feeling not good enough. So it's like connecting back to that and learning from that and being able to nurture that inner child of yourself. And sometimes these subconscious patterns, we don't even know what we're doing or we don't know where they were rooted from. That's why I'm so excited to have had Dr. Jeff McNary on the podcast. Dr. Jeff is the chief medical officer and co-founder of Rhythmia Life Advancement Center. So Rhythmia is an all-inclusive, beautiful resort. They've got yoga, breathwork, meditation, massages, colonics, and it's a plant medicine retreat center, specifically ayahuasca. So for those of you who aren't familiar with ayahuasca, it is a brew of rainforest plants and vines that has been shown to be massively healing for a lot of mental pathologies like depression, addiction, post-traumatic stress disorder, anxiety. It's been used for hundreds if not thousands of years by indigenous cultures. And Dr. Jeff is helping bring these ancient traditions into the Western world, making it more accessible and safe and releasing the stigma around it. And one description of ayahuasca that I really liked was that ayahuasca triggers our innate wisdom. It has a profound capacity to illuminate the issues underlying depression, anxiety, and addiction. Often what's revealed is the unprocessed trauma lying at the root of these. By bringing awareness directly to the source, deep healing can occur. And Dr. Jeff is so perfect for this work because he has worked in the mental health field for over 25 years. He was the previous administrative director of Passages Malibu, which y'all may have seen the commercials for Passages. It's a well-known drug and alcohol rehabilitation facility. He's also managed to work within various medical arenas from the UCLA Medical Center, Department of Health in Hawaii. And Dr. Jeff's specialties include working with patients who have addictions and trauma. In this episode, Dr. Jeff shares his own journey with plant medicine and the neuroscience. This is what I love about Dr. Jeff. He shares what is actually happening in the brain, how this is working, how this is rewiring our patterns. And so before we begin, though, I do want to note that ayahuasca isn't like a magic pill either though. You don't just go take ayahuasca and then everything in your life is magic. There is so much, and Dr. Jeff mentions this, there is so much that happens after the ceremony of integration, of still practicing meditation, breath work, doing yoga, or things that bring you presence and connection to yourself. It's also still honoring your health, eating the right foods. So much of mental health is directly impacted by your gut health, by what you're putting in your body. So still paying attention to that, learning food sensitivities, learning how to heal your gut if you are inflamed. So this is a very holistic approach to full body healing, body, mind, spirit. If you're listening to this and you're like, there's no way I'm doing plant medicine. This sounds crazy, Ellie. (laughs) That's okay. You can still reach deep healing through different modalities, especially breathwork. I cannot emphasize the power of breathwork that I've seen this year in myself and with people that I host. So I now do a Wim Hof. So for you all don't know Wim Hof, I lead a Wim Hof group here in Austin. It's a style of holotropic breathing combined with cold exposure, but even just the breathwork, different styles of holotropic breathing, what this does, it moves a lot of energy in the body and it can release a lot of stuck emotions. So Throughout our lives, we store so much, we repress so much emotion and that gets locked in the body. And so by doing the breath work, it allows a lot of things to be released. And sometimes, I mean, every time I sit down for breath work or I watch like clients go through it, they'll have different, I mean, the experience can release, maybe laughing, you may be crying, you may be feel, experience anger or frustration. And like, there's times where I'm like, start crying after breath work And I don't know consciously why. And you don't have to. It's a release. It's like how good it feels sometimes to have like a really good cry. It just feels so good. It's like, oh, I've been holding that in for so long. And it's just that kind of work and doing that regularly where you're letting out things that you're holding on to. Even the other day, I was leading breath work for a group and we were going around sharing our experience afterwards. And one of the men that was there said it was the deepest state of peace he's felt since his wife died and it was just like i was so taken aback and just reminded like this is this is such a powerful tool and specifically with that the wim Hof method these long breath holds start with some faster paced breathing and then you drop in with these long breath holds and in, in these holds you can find so much stillness especially at the end it, and this is why it's one of my favorite tools because sometimes it's hard to just sit in meditation, especially if you're go, go, going all day long and then all of a sudden you're trying to force your body to sit still and the mind's like rebelling like crazy. A breathwork does, it allows to move the energy in the body and then hold. And it's there's an access to that stillness that sometimes it's hard to find in meditation unless you're able to sit for a long time. So I just can't emphasize enough how much I recommend doing it. And I've had deep like psychedelic type experiences from breath work that you don't have to take necessarily a psychedelic medication to get there. So that's always available to you too. And you can look up YouTube videos on holotropic breathing, Wim Hof method. Or if you wanna do a guided breath work session with me, you can set up a session. Or if you need help with your nutrition, your gut health or mindful eating, reach out. I'm here for you. All right, with that, let's go to Dr. Jeff. Hi, Dr. Jeff. How are you?
0: I'm good. How are you?
1: I'm so good. I'm so psyched for this podcast episode. I've been like itching all week um, to get to talk to you. So this is awesome. Nice to
0: see you. Yeah. And I'm excited too. It's going to be really nice. I can, I can feel it.
1: (laughs) Good. Well, yay. To begin, I would love it if you could just share a little bit about who you are and how you got into the work that you're doing.
0: Sure. So I'm, I'm a, I have a doctorate in psychology and I have a master's degree in public health. I'm the chief medical officer here at Rhythmia. I'm from Los Angeles, California, where I ran a bunch of inpatient facilities, primarily drug and alcohol rehabs. And also I worked in psychiatric hospitals and had a, a private practice that I was doing for many years from uh, at UCLA. I worked in women's health and in the OBGYN department and managed a clinic there. And worked with uh, mostly people that have been victimized and trauma people and also addiction, obviously, and then acute psychiatric care. so I've been uh, in the Western medical model my whole career, and uh, now I'm down in Costa Rica running a facility called Rhythmia, which is uh, very different than the Western model.
1: <laughs> yes, thank you. So I'm so excited for this because I really want to dive into the addiction and behavior because a lot of listeners are dealing with that and just kind of the underlying roots of that but for people who have no idea what rhythmia is no idea what like ayahuasca is can you dive into a little bit what rhythmia is
0: yeah so um, we are a, a medically licensed facility by the costa rican ministry of health and we give ayahuasca as a clinical treatment to help people with a variety of issues Um, people come here for different reasons. Some come to deal with anxiety or depression. Some come to deal with uh, eating disorders and addiction. And some come for just life changes, and maybe they're going through a divorce or having some loss in the family that was hard, and they're here to process and kind of work past their trauma and their different sort of life situations. So we have um, a variety of modalities that we use, such as breathwork, yoga, meditation, we have very healthy food, we have a spa with bodywork, and there's a lot of classes that give um, information on how to manage the ayahuasca experience, because most of our guests are first-time people to this, and uh, we have an international crowd, and people come from all over the world here, and because it's really safe, and Costa Rica is a beautiful country, and the people that are from Costa Rica are some of the nicest, most amazing people I've ever met, so we're a wellness center and our official name is Rhythmia Life Advancement Center. And uh, it's just, there's a lot going on here every week and the program is one week long. And it's it's kicking out amazing results that are mind blowing for someone like myself who came from a Western model where recovery rates and success rates in healthcare are very low. So this is a very encouraging sort of experience that I'm having here with, clinically with all these patients.
1: Yes, and just firsthand, Experiences and could see all the transformations from people in the groups that, and it's just so true. And so what do you feel like is missing in the current medical paradigm? Like why, why is this like, a, maybe an option to choose?
0: Well, I think what happens in, in the wet. Uh, people look at symptoms, you know, clinicians are trained to look at symptoms. Now symptoms are very important as a starting point. Because if you feel, if you're having a panic attack, well, that's a symptom. So you have to work on anxiety. But what happens is people um, are usually just given meds and maybe referred to therapy. Uh, However, it it takes a long time to really get to the core reason of why someone is having a panic attack. And what are the underlying conditions of that? Is it trauma-based? Is it family dynamic-based? Is it life situation-based? There's all these different things. And the medical system and the Western sort of psychological system is not set up all the time. To deal with like what's causing all this. Now, if people will have the the luxury of going to therapy, that can be very helpful up to a certain point. But we all know that's expensive. It's time consuming. It takes a long time to build rapport with a clinician. And if you're working on some very sensitive issues of trauma and abuse or neglect or abandonment, it's hard to build that trust with a clinician in a quick way. So it's usually a long, drawn out process that takes years. And there's high risk behavior during that time. And there's also um, Sometimes substance abuse gets involved, and it's it's just a long process that's expensive and hard to go through
1: yes, and so, what is this medicine doing to the brain to allow the the healing that happens in such a quick time and that access to like deep trauma wounds and how does that work? yeah
0: yeah, well, that's a great question because that's the part that I really study a lot with our medical director um down here in Costa rica and what what we've learned and what we experience all the time with these guests is. The, the neurochemical imbalances that lead to anxiety and depression and other sort of issues addiction um, those lead people to seek sort of different treatments and, and modalities to kind of help themselves but but what we're noticing with ayahuasca in particular is it's it's almost like a reset button for your neurochemistry and what happens is when you drink the ayahuasca it's like a little small cup of like a brew like a tea the neuro chemistry starts to rebalance, especially the serotonin receptors. There's five key serotonin receptors that get adjusted and the dopamine levels get affected. And that helps with, with mood. And that's a part of like the neurochemistry sort of synaptic plasticity that's going on in the brain. But in addition to that, there's a part of the brain called the amygdala, which stores our subconscious memories and sort of uh, emotions that occurred usually during uh, a scary or traumatic event. And those emotions get pushed into the amygdala and they they kind of sit there for a while. And eventually they creep into what's called the prefrontal cortex. And that's our conscious, rational, sort of logical part of our brain, sort of our self-awareness component. And, And if I have trauma at a young age and I have fear and anger and confusion and chaos and guilt and shame shoved into my amygdala, what happens is I go through life sort of distant and not really connecting with people. And I don't trust people and I never let myself be vulnerable. And so what happens with ayahuasca is it goes in and it taps into the amygdala, which then allows these emotions to kind of be unlocked. And then they connect with the prefrontal cortex, which allows them to leave because you feel these emotions. And that's, that can be a little intimidating for some people because who wants to feel fear and anger and sadness from when they were five? but the good news about it is it's not like it was then the emotions surface and they leave. And that's the process of healing. And, and by the way, that's the same process of healing for therapy or hypnotherapy or any sort of deep trauma work. That's what they're trying to do. The clinical people are trying to tap into that part of the brain to let those emotions out. But that's why it takes years to do that. Unfortunately in the Western model, the ayahuasca model is very quick. It can happen in one night. And that's, what's so beautiful about this program is it's fast.
1: Yes. And do you see that, I guess, like with the current medical paradigm, like you're saying being able to tap into these like subconscious layers, what do you, what is blocking the ability to do that?
0: Yeah. Well, lack of trust of the clinical people, just because if people are traumatized, they don't trust anybody. So it's not, it's nothing personal against the clinicians. They're, they're great people trying to work hard, right. And work with their people. But it's, it's just mental blocks of not being, they don't wanna be vulnerable because being vulnerable meant being hurt in the past. And it's also very hard to tap in to the subconscious without a really good clinical person. And uh, people can do it. And that's why a lot of uh, doctorate level psychologists go on to get a hypnotherapy sort of uh, component to their degree where they can actually help people tap into the subconscious. But those therapists are very expensive. They're, they're not very common. And they're just hard to find. So I think it's a matter of just like mental blocks that prevent people from going deep and also access to the clinical staff that exists that can actually do that kind of work.
1: Mm, Yes. I mean, I saw this personally, I don't mean to like switch it to myself, but I saw this personally with the experience of being able to see on plant medicines. Like, so I was molested as a child. I didn't want to access that. My brain would like not let me look at it. Um, and so being with the medicine, it was like one of the nights I was just, I had to sit with it and feel it and, and let it come up. And it was beautiful what resulted from that. But it, that was, I mean, I've been seeing a therapist, like we were never able to do that. Um, so it, yeah, just personal testimony. Thank you. Yeah. Well, the,
0: it's interesting how that is. and That's a very common experience for people that come here is that, you know, and you did it the perfect way is you, you allowed yourself to sit with it and feel it. And in order to really do that, you had to feel safe in your environment first here. And that's what's really nice about people arriving on the weekend. That's how they either come on a Saturday or a Sunday. They get to know the facility. They get to know the people that work here. This is a beautiful area. It's very safe. And then they feel comfortable on Monday night, which is the first night, to go deep and to be able to sit with these feelings. Because there's a lot of staff. And there's a lot of really amazing people who work here. To kind of create that environment of safety so you can do that kind of work you can sit with those emotions in that moment to process them
1: yes that makes so much sense and and that was that's so like i've never felt so safe (laughs) like i've never felt so held i think even that without the medicine of just being able to be held by and like let go like that was so healing Um, yes so your staff is just like mind blowing. How amazing awesome! That was. Yeah,
0: they are. They are seriously amazing people. I've never met a staff like this in the history of my career ever. They're amazing.
1: Yes. Ah. Uh, well, and I kind of want to backtrack a little bit on in your personal journey with how you got into it. Um, mm-hmm. and just because your story and Jerry's story, I, I feel like everyone yeah. needs to hear that. Yeah, so if you're open to sharing yeah. about that.
0: Absolutely. So, uh, I was running a place called Passages Malibu, which is an inpatient drug and alcohol rehab, I was administrative director for about eight years. And during that time, near the end of the eight years, uh, a guy showed up named Jerry. And he was really hard to deal with. And he had a long history of addiction to Demerol, alcohol, cocaine, crazy behavior. He was a multimillionaire successful guy in the world, but he was a miserable, upset, angry individual. And he eventually ended up at Passages, and so instead of uh, turning him over to my clinical team completely, I kept tabs on him a bit and worked with him myself, you know, kind of chatting with him every day for 60 days, and we hit it off, and he actually was able to do the work necessary to get off of the Demerol, which is what he thought he was there for only, which is very funny, because we <laughs> we go to rehab, you kind of have to get rid of all the drugs and alcohol, but his goal was just the Demerol, which he did. And he got rid of that. But after that, he still had the alcohol and the cocaine and the the crazy behavior that was leading him to be very miserable. So I left passages and started working with him individually. And we worked together for five years. And it was rough. We tried every single modality, all the things that you know, you would traditionally think about hypnotherapy, yoga, and go surfing and do yoga, do a group, you know, just everything we, individual work, just everything we could do. And nothing was, nothing was clicking with him. So he heard on a whim about a place in Costa Rica that did plant medicine. It, it could help him because somebody referred him there that had a similar sort of background. So he just went for it. Cause there's really, we tried everything. What happened is it completely changed his life. He realized that he was molested as a young boy by his grandfather. And he, he realized that why this happened and how he was able to heal it. He was able to give forgiveness to his grandfather and kind of move past it. And he did this all in a week. And he had this burden removed from him that was incredible. And I was up in Los Angeles, you know, when this was happening, I was just like, dude, just go down there and try it. Like, I don't know much about what's going to happen there, but you just got to go. When he came back, he was a different person. It was amazing. So I was actually shocked by this because I, I hadn't been trained in this. You know, I didn't know anything about this. This was new territory. I I was actually very skeptical, to tell you the truth. So he told me that I had to go down and try it so I could understand it. So so I was a little hesitant because I didn't have an addiction. I was working already in the field. You know, I I, I just, I didn't see it for myself as something viable that I needed to do. But I, I said, okay, cool. So I'll do it. Well, what happened when I was down here in Costa Rica at that facility, which was up in the mountains, And it was not a a nice place. It was a a crappy little house. The shaman was amazing. The medicine was amazing, but the environment was horrible. Dirty, just not, it wasn't cool. Like as far as all those things are concerned, like amenities, it was horrible. But when I first did the plant medicine, it completely changed my life, completely. And I was not expecting that at all because I grew up in a part of Los Angeles in the 70s that was very dangerous. And I had to survive in my neighborhood in a certain way that was scary for me as a little kid. And I just kind of thought it was normal because that's just my whole environment was that way. So I grew up and became a certain, uh, I had a certain personality style that was a little bit uh, aggressive because of the way I was raised in that part of Los Angeles. And I was sort of unaware of it because I was working in psychology and I was a science guy at UCLA. And I manage clinics and I worked with women who've been victimized, you know, so I didn't, I didn't see that part about myself. But when I did plant medicine, I realized that as a little kid, which I did inner child work, which is another theme for the plant medicine you can do, you can kind of go to yourself as a child and soothe yourself at that, era, at that age and kind of see what happened then. And I was doing that. And I realized that really, I was just a scared little kid growing up in a, in a violent environment. And that connected with me emotionally and allowed me to lower the the sort of buffer that I had between me and everybody else in the world, even as an adult. And I was just able to lower that. I didn't have to be like an intimidating, aggressive sort of, you know, alpha male (laughs) that I had become. I was able to relax and and not have that, that block to everybody. So I could actually engage with people in a nicer manner and I could be a better clinician. And so... That's when Jerry and I both decided that we wanted to have a facility that was safe, that was medically licensed, that had clinical people, but also had shamans and all the holistic sort of people that you think of, like yoga instructors and meditation people, but also had doctors and nurses and therapists and and EMTs and all that kind of stuff. We could kind of be a bridge between the Western sort of comforts that people kind of get used to with healthcare and, and, and hospitalization and things, but then also the, the jungle culture, right? Of the, the plant medicine and the shamans and the indigenous healing that's so powerful. So that's how this happened. And when, when Jerry uh, purchased the property, I was here by myself essentially for about almost two years. And what I was doing is I was working with the Ministry of Health, getting us licensed. And my background in public health in health policy and program development at UCLA allowed me to, to navigate the application process. So I worked with a lot of people to do this, but it took about two years. And once we got the license, we opened, and we've seen over eight thousand guests through these doors with a ninety-seven percent almost success rate, self-reported at the end survey result, which is insane to actually see that. You know,
1: yes. And didn't you say I don't know if you mentioned it here so far, but I know you like what was passages rate of recovery for
0: people? Uh, 12 to 15%, which is the national average for uh, drug and alcohol rehabs. That was my belief of what passages was, because there's no actual studies done from passages that were actually clinically or uh, statistically done at all. But that was the national average for rehabs for inpatient is 12 to 15%. And that means once they're there for 30 days inpatient, when they discharge, you measure it a year later, are they sober? And again, the national average for any Drug and alcohol rehab is about 12%. So much lower, much lower than <laughs> what we're dealing with, you know? And we follow up with guests. It's not just like, oh, how are you doing at the end of the week? Because everybody's feeling amazing. So most people are like so excited and happy, right? We follow up with people six months later. And then most people, a lot of people come back here. So we have a lot of contact with our alumni and we're collecting data constantly on what's happening with their experience and. If they got what they came for. And we call it, we call it getting your miracle, is what we how we phrase it. You know, and if they get that, then that's a success.
1: Yes. And what would you like? I guess going into people's successes, what kind of transformations do you see from people when they're like beginning to the end of their trip?
0: When people show up here, you can see in their in their face and in their eyes and in their posture that they're just either flooded with emotional baggage or they're just exhausted from life or just beat down from a history of drug and alcohol abuse. And they're, they're hoping and so open to a change because they've tried, usually tried everything possible to get better. And what happens throughout the week is, is really incredible because you start to see that they, they stand up straighter, their, their faces brighter, their eyes become clear they're less burdened, they're they're releasing so much emotional trauma and baggage. And they're getting clarity on like what they want to do in their life and who they want to be. They're forgiving people that have hurt them. There's all this amazing sort of healing stuff happening. That is, I mean, the people that, that come here, for example, like the guests report to us that they have a history of being on antidepressant medication for years. And then they report to us, that they didn't go back to those medications when they got home and they didn't need to, and they feel great. That's one, one example. Another is uh, people report having lighter symptoms of autoimmune disorders when they go home. That's, and we don't make medical claims as a facility. We can't do that, but what we can say is what the guests report to us. So they report a whole range of amazing things happening all the way from mental health things becoming fixed or remedied to physical ailments that we're holding them back and, and making them unhappy and feeling pain. So it's incredible. Like what we see here every week, it's very rewarding work.
1: Yes. And can you speak to that a little bit about how physical manifestations of disease and, and joint pain are things that are actually trauma based?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, in psychology and psychiatry, we believe in a, a psychosomatic response to emotion. So, what that means is if, let's say, I have a bunch of anxiety, but I don't feel uh, comfortable or I don't feel empowered to express my anxiety or I just don't know how to. So what I do, as opposed to feeling the anxiety and and letting it out, I just hold it in my body and I store it and I kind of just bottle it up. So over the years of doing this with anxiety, I start to develop physical symptoms, and those can be a whole range of things. They can just be as far as lower back pain, abdominal tightness, all the way up to Crohn's disease or lupus even cancer can can develop from holding emotion in and being stressed out and not expressing it and not letting it out and not dealing with it so what happens with the plant medicine is you take you drink it into your body and the plant medicine goes to these areas physically where you're storing this sort of emotional energy and it sort of shakes it loose is there, is an analogy and that's why people some people throw up because that's an emotional release mm-hmm. some people go to the bathroom it's the same thing or my favorite way to do it is yawning is my, is my favorite way to purge and or sweating or sort of moving around a little bit. So it's a physical response to an emotional release. So we see that every night here on Mo- Monday through Thursday are our ceremonies of ayahuasca. And that's happening every night is this sort of physical release of an emotional component.
1: Thank you for for explaining that. And I mean, just to the extreme, have you seen any like radical re- remissions or i forget what the term is um just like when people have was it spontaneous remission
0: yeah yeah um i have had guests report that to me a lot and all kinds of different things hip hip uh, issues uh cancer breast cancer issues people have reported that as guests that that has been resolved and then you know they go home and we recommend go to your doctor (laughs) and get a checkup. And you know also thyroid issues get, get resolved. According to the guests, they were, they report that as well. And it's just an amazing thing, but we always recommend go see your, go see your attending doctors to like double check and make sure and get the, just to be safe, right. You have to do the testing and make sure things are cool, but guests report that all the time to us. They report it constantly.
1: That's amazing. One of the, um, one of the friends I made um, at the retreat, he, his glasses got crushed in the middle of the night and he had bad eyesight his whole life, or at least his adult life. And he had perfect vision when he woke up, he didn't need his glasses anymore. And I'm just That's like,
0: right. That's right. I had a, a, while. I, had a similar, I had a similar experience when I did plant medicine. I've, I've been wearing, I have astigmatism. I've been wearing glasses since I was in seventh grade and my eyes have sort of stayed the, sort of the same for, till my adult years. And after I did the plant medicine, I didn't need my glasses anymore. I actually saw better than ever before. So that—that that was my own personal experience with something physical that happened. I can't explain it. I have no idea what happened, but I think you know what we what we explain to people here is that when you're plugged into yourself and your physical body is present with your emotional and spiritual self, you can heal yourself. Your body is an amazing tool. It's an amazing mechanism. When you're plugged in, you can. You can operate clearly and your body is connected to itself and you're not in this avoidance pattern or dissociation, as we call in psychology, you're connected. And so when you're plugged in, you can heal your body.
1: Mm, That makes so much sense. And with like, you just mentioned dissociation and like, could you explain the dissociation and splitting of how we can split as children or infants?
0: Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's interesting because these concepts that we, that we discuss at Rhythmia. They're not like these far out weird things. This this is what psychology believes. This is what psychiatry believes. This is what uh, Buddhism believes. This is what, there's all these different disciplines in the world, whether it's philosophical, religious or scientific that are in line with a lot of different things that happen to us as humans in in this earth, right? And so one of the main things that, that we talk about is that between the ages of two and roughly seven years old, there's a separation of self that occurs and a splitting. And I call that a dissociation. And what that, the reason for that is because there was a trauma or there was an, an abandonment or a neglect, or there was a theme of the, the kid feeling that they had to take care of themselves emotionally. Now, this doesn't mean you have to have these horrible caregivers. Not at all. I had amazing caregivers. My parents are awesome and they didn't abuse me or anything, but I grew up in an environment that was dangerous. So I split because of my environment. And because I felt like I had to take care of myself to survive. And so this split occurs. And then what happens is as we age, we're no longer five or six, we're, you know, teenagers and young adults. And then whatever age we get to, we're showing the world this other sort of image of like, it's not really who we are. And that becomes the ego. And the ego is meant to really protect us. It's meant to safeguard us from things that frightened us or our vulnerabilities, just trying to mask and hide that from the world because we want to show the world a certain thing. Now, sometimes that's a very successful business person that we show the world. Sometimes it's a drug addict that doesn't want to be involved with anyone and wants to unplug all the time. Maybe it's, uh, you know, the valedictorian, the class clown. It doesn't really matter what it is, but we show the world something that's not authentically us. And within ourselves, there's this core identity that's either gotten lost or that we're afraid to actually tap into because when we were with ourselves and plugged into ourselves at a young age, it wasn't enough is what we felt like. And we got hurt because of it. And now we don't wanna do that. So a big part of arrhythmia is plugging back into that, resolving, like seeing who you've become and who that is, which is one of our intentions, show me who I've become. And then connecting back and reuniting and merging back with yourself and with your soul, as we call it, which is our second intention. And then getting the healing that you deserve because you've been through a lot in life. There's been a lot of pain and getting the healing and healing your heart, which is our third intention. So those are like the umbrella sort of intentions and philosophies that that we go by here at Rhythmia. And that's when people realize those three intentions and get that met, that's when we say, you got your miracle. And that's like the phrases that we used to say that you met those three intentions.
1: Mm, Thank you. And with Show Me Who I've Become, Are there, are there common themes that you see with what people like become aware of that they weren't aware of?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Like, like sometimes people see that they've become liars or they become money hungry or they become abusive, uh, disconnected parents or spiteful, vindictive young, you know, people like they see, they see that they've become these things that are really not them, but they're just using as tools to sort of cope, you know, and survive with what they they come across in their life. You know, everybody's different. Everybody's so unique and there's there's just difference in all these things, right? And so that's sometimes that's the hardest intention is to show me who I've become because we don't really want to look at that part, right? Because it can be upsetting to us.
1: Yes. And how do you think that in itself just like being acting out these these patterns and show me who I've become or avoiding that? How do you think that plays into things like addiction and binge eating?
0: Well, we believe that every single disorder that exists in the world, whether it's addiction, binge eating, bulimia, anorexia, anything, uh, illnesses, we believe that all of these things are a result of being unplugged because when you're plugged in, you're with yourself. you're you're clear. you're making better decisions. We're always learning from decisions, but you're more you're more in tune with yourself and your environment. So, We believe that all disease and disorders are a result of being unplugged from yourself.
1: And are there tools besides plant medicine that can help, like that you've seen that help people plug back into themselves?
0: Absolutely. There's countless other modalities that are very good that exist in the world. Breathwork is something that's becoming a little bit more popular lately around the world. We do breathwork here on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday nights. And that is an amazing tool. It's very similar to a, an ayahuasca session. You can have that, that clarity and connection and that healing. So breathwork is a good one. Meditation, of course, we all know that's very good. It's hard for me to do that. I, I, I struggle with that <laughs> myself, but it's a really good one to clear the mind and to center yourself. Yoga, as we know, is amazing as well. And so anything that, that can plug you into yourself. For me, it's exercise. Like I like to do exercise mindfully. So the difference between doing exercise just randomly and doing it mindfully is that mindfully I'm recharging and reconnecting with myself. So any mindfulness activity is going to be helpful for this. So plant medicine is one tool and it's a good tool and it's an effective tool, but there's a lot of other amazing effective tools that exist as well.
1: Yes. And I was blown away with um, the breathwork that we did. I did a session before we took any ayahuasca and I mean, I had like, I was shaking, I was bawling, crying. I had this yeah. huge revelation that yeah. I, as a baby, wanted more love from my dad, and my dad, like you mentioned, my parents were like textbook great, but I just like <laughs> as a baby, wanted more from him, uh-huh, and I yeah. came up in breath work, so it was just like mind blowing
0: it is mind blowing, yes, breath work is serious, it's really, really effective,
1: yeah and why is that? what is it actually? If you can speak to that, like what is happening in the physiology that's allowing like, things to move, energy, emotions. It's,
0: it's similar to the neurochemical response on plant medicine. And, and what's happening is there's a component. There's a Now, when I say dissociation, usually I'm referring to that's a problematic pathology, right? But on plant medicine and in breath work, there's a, there's a healthy dissociative quality that I'll, that I'll explain that's a little different. As a clinician, when I'm working with my patients in Los Angeles, I could give them all kinds of great advice, and I can see what's wrong in their life, and I can figure it out pretty quickly, and I can be an amazing clinical person with all this knowledge, but in my own life, I'm just like everybody else. Like, I'm like, oh, I'm lost. I make mistakes. I do dumb stuff, and so on plant medicine and on breath work, when you're doing that, you can almost counsel yourself, and you... Have a dis- it's a dissociative experience where you are your own therapist, you are your own clinician, you are your own shaman. You do the work yourself. And it has a lot to do with serotonin, has a lot to do with uh the breathing and the oxygen content during breath work and how that's shifting through your body and the tissues, it also has to do with your intentions because you can you can do ayahuasca and or breath work and not have any goal whatsoever. And it, you still might get something out of it, but when you go into it with intent. And with purpose, that's where it really works with you to help you get these needs met.
1: Yes. Oh, this is so helpful. And so for someone listening who's like, has no idea how to get into breath work, do you have any recommendations?
0: Yeah, there's a lot of these. Um, you can learn it online. Like, it, that's what's cool about it. Like, you can, you can do it for yourself. You don't have to have a facilitator to do breath work. Now, it's better if you do. It, it's more, uh, you might feel safer and go deeper and learn it. More effectively, if you have a facilitator, and there's a lot of places that are popping up all over the world that have, you know, it's almost like a yoga gym that they have breathwork sessions that they do after hours. You know, there's a lot of these people around, kind of like how Reiki was starting to become pretty popular. There's a lot of Reiki practitioners. There's also starting to be a lot of uh, breathwork facilitators. So if you just go online and check in your area, and if not, if there's nobody, you can just go to YouTube, and there's, there's techniques on there, and they can show you how to do it it's, it's really, really good. It's becoming much more popular as as the the years go on here.
1: Yes. Awesome. Thank you. And then I do want to dive a little bit more into, into like specifically like sugar addiction, binge eating, just with your extensive background in addiction. Yeah. Yeah. For people listening who are kind of on the beginning of that journey, and they're just like, so in it and they like, don't even know what to do. Like they're so addicted to sugar. What are your recommended like first steps?
0: Well, I think like, uh, like sugar addiction, they've, been, they've made comparisons to it neurochemically and also the reward system in the brain. They make comparisons to cocaine addiction and also sex addiction. And so what that means is not that those are similar things. Obviously, they're very different. But the reward principle that we have for ourselves when we feel satisfied or when we have a pleasure met, which is a part of a human experience, um, there's a mechanism that kicks in, that gives us a surge, a surge that helps us feel content and happy and even high, you could say. And so when that, when that mechanism in the brain, it's a, it's a frontal lobe issue. When that mechanism is being triggered constantly through a lot of sugar all the time, or through people that have a cocaine addiction, for example, doing cocaine all the time, or even gambling addiction, pulling the the thing, you know, the, whatever that is, right? I don't even know. (laughs) Slot machine, right? Like that is causing that mechanism in the brain to be overstimulated and overworked. So what happens is it becomes like a free-flowing channel where the body just says, all right, we're not going to have any impulse control now because you've like burned out this sort of mechanism. And so now I don't have impulse control, not only in eating, but I don't have it in other things. And the statistics for women that have an eating disorder are almost a hundred percent. They also have a, an alcohol problem. Almost, it's not quite a hundred percent. It depends on the study. But there's there's addictions. There's co. They call it comorbidity, right? There's variety of things going together that have impulse control issues. So, wanting some sugar once in a while is not a bad thing. But when it becomes a, a tool to escape whatever is happening in your life or to deal with a past of trauma it can it has the danger to become something that lo- you lose the control about it right the impulse is gone to control it and then that's where it becomes a serious problem and that's where eating disorders develop so being able to to see that in yourself right because often people don't even want to look at that because it's it's overwhelming but to be able to see that in yourself in a plant medicine session or a breathwork session is truly empowering Because then it's like, wow, okay, I see why I'm doing this. I see what it means. I see what's happening with my brain. I'm going to readjust the neurons in my brain to not have this anymore and to get back to being in control, which is the synaptic plasticity component of ayahuasca. And then behaviorally, I'm going to see, so I've I've addressed it neurochemically now behaviorally, I'm going to see, okay, look, I have to make some, some changes in my life. I'm not going to buy that stuff. I'm not going to go to that bakery. I'm not going to, whatever it is, right? The triggers You work on the triggers the behavioral side so for somebody that's like right in it it's understandable it's a coping tool it's probably saving your life to some degree temporarily at least emotionally but it's important to not get buried in that because it's not gonna it's not gonna do what it's doing for you now it's gonna wear out and eventually lead to other things so the people that come here that have that history They do amazingly well they do great because our food by the way as i'm sure you remember is super super healthy and very good for the body it's also a medicine so the food here is good and meg is our chef and she has a history of eating disorders that she talks about all the time on her facebook lives and the people that come here that have a specific sort of eating issue she works with them herself and and sort of oversees and helps them while they're here in our restaurant so we have all those bases covered to help people be successful to have that sort of background.
1: Yes. Oh, this is awesome. And I feel like there is such a, like, just difference between, like, I coach a lot of people on with, like, cognitive tools and, and, like, recognizing impulses. But there's something about healing the actual, like, I feel like once, even for me, like, with sugar addiction, it's like, yeah, once it was out, but it was always still there. It's, like, always still there. Like, a dish that yeah. you can always fall into. But there's yeah. something with ayahuasca where it's like, you're no longer like about to fall in the ditch. It's like, that's so, right. Yeah. So
0: it's that's because it's a, a two pronged approach to recovery, whether it's drug and alcohol addiction, whether it's eating issues, whether it's anxiety based panic attack stuff, whatever it might be. The, the field, the Western model has two camps that fight each other. One of them is more on the science side. So we're going to address the neurochemistry. We're going to give you meds. We're going to do, uh, you know, electroshock therapy. We're going to do all this different neurochemical stuff, science-based. And then the other group, the uh, sort of more clinical st- uh, psychologists, thera- masters in family therapy, that kind of thing. They're looking at like, okay, what are the underlying causes of all this? What, How can we help you process these emotions and this trauma? And so each one kind of has its own sort of philosophy. but and each one works, but you have to have both. You have to have both going on. So that's why ayahuasca is amazing because it's it's looking at both of those. It's addressing the neurochemical issues and the brain issues. And it's also addressing behavioral underlying causes. And that's part of the awareness of self that happens while they're on
1: these journeys, as we call them. Yes. Ah, oh, thank you for explaining that. And um, I guess for someone who is listening and is like, oh, I'm interested in rhythmia what could, what can they expect if they're really scared? Um, what, yeah, how does a ceremony work?
0: Well, first of all, before they even get to Rhythmia, they've gone through a long supportive sort of intake process with our staff that are based in Los Angeles over the phone. And they've been prepped and counseled and talked to about what to expect and how things go and check if they're on meds and all these different things. And then they arrive at the airport and we have a Our own shuttles, our own drivers. We know exactly who's coming, what flight you're on, and we pick you up. We drive you here. It's about an hour. And you get here and you're immediately greeted by the multitasking, sort of holistic staff who are all awesome. And they greet you and they give you an orientation. You come down to the medical clinic. You get supervised by the doctors and the nurses. We check your vitals. And then after doing a couple breathwork sessions, then you're in on Monday night, right? And what happens up there? Is The shamans have already met you, usually, and they already know who's who and what they're dealing with and what your intentions are, because there's been a couple classes before this, and they're totally aware of every guest there, and there's a ratio that I maintain it's either five to one or seven to one, depending, um, guest to staff, so you're assigned someone and they're watching you. We have an emergency medical technician who's up there every single night, walking around, making sure everybody's safe. We have uh, doctors on call. We have two doctors sitting in the parking lot in an ambulance waiting if anything's needed. And knock on wood, we've never used it once. They're just bored playing cards and dominoes in there. And I'm on call for every ceremony as well as our medical director who lives on the property. So there's a ton of staff. There's a ton of medical people. We know your history. We know who you are. We've been working with you before you even got to Rhythmia. So you're not a stranger. When you show up and go, hey. John Doe, nice to see you, because I've probably been talking to him for a, a couple months, right? So there's a familiarity and a closeness that allows the people to, to go deep and feel safe while they're here.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes. And like I guess what to, can they expect if, once they drink the medicine?
0: Mm-hmm. So if they went out into the jungles of Peru, for example, They would likely be given a a glass of ayahuasca about this big, which is huge, (laughs) huge. So at Rhythmia, we give them about an ounce and a half. It's like a shot glass. It's a small amount. And they drink it. And then they go and they lay down on a very comfortable mattress with pillows and sheets and blankets. They have their own mattress. It's their own private area. And within about an hour or so, they start to feel some tingling in the body, they sort of feel some movement in the stomach area and maybe intestinal area. And they start to feel almost like going into sort of a, a dream sort of sleep state. And then they can either fall asleep a little bit, like I tend to do, or they can close their eyes and they can start to see some sort of geometric patterns, which usually represent uh, neurochemistry rebalancing. And if they open their eyes, it's usually disappears to some degree. And they just, oh, I'm just at Rhythmia, you know, then they close their eyes again. And it's, it, it's dark in the room. There's candles and light, you know, there's enough to see, but it's, it's like, it's soothing light. It's dark enough. And then they close their eyes and they think of their intentions. And then they start to have some awareness just come to them, some clarity of mind. They might have visuals potentially, and they open their eyes and they usually the visuals are not there. or they still could sort of be there a bit, the visual part, that's the serotonin and the dimethyltryptamine, which is the active ingredient, sort of interacting with the brain chemistry. And then after like about two and a half hours, it's over. And so it's just a peak, you know, climbs for an hour, you're in a 30 minute, 40 minute sort of zone of peakness, it starts to decline. And that's where we start to offer the second dose. And it can be the same size, it can be a little bit more, if they weren't feeling it that much, it can be less. And we do that three or four times a night. So every two and a half hours or so, there's another opportunity to drink more medicine. And people always ask me like, well, how do I know? I'm like, trust me, you'll know, trust me, you'll know. But if you don't know, the shamans are there to help you understand your own process and what you need. So they're very good at that. So you're very, you're sort of coddled in this safe place. It's got AC, it's got fans, it's got really cool music. It's got their staging. They're doing all the shamanic sort of tools and things. It's really, it's really cool. It's really a fun, interesting thing that happens here.
1: It's the best. It's like the best experience um, I could have asked for. And and just even again, like the ayahuasca is amazing, but the the actual rituals and being and doing, going through a lot of hard stuff, but it's healing. But you're with like fifty other people. It's Like just the connection you feel with other people. I feel like that's so lacking in life right now, especially with COVID. Like I think that alone was so healing, just being there with other people and like how intimate you get connected with strangers within a week.
0: Yeah. The community is one of my favorite parts of this, of this company because, you know, the world is going through so much right now. And I believe the world always has been, but but we're, uh, we're more aware of it now because of the access with technology. We can see what's going on everywhere in the world. It's, it's upsetting. It's upsetting. And uh, the community that comes is there are people from every walk of life from all over the world. And everybody's totally cool with each other. And they're all different backgrounds and religious beliefs and cultural beliefs and just everything's so different. And they just bond as a group. And it's the really, it's the nicest part, I think, of this arrhythmia is that the community.
1: I agree. It's like the best adult summer camp <laughs> yeah. for all year round That's camp. Good um. way
0: to put it. Yes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and what about like, I don't want to like, I guess bad, quote unquote, bad experiences, um, bad yeah. trips. If people are yeah. concerned about that.
0: Yeah. So uh, the number one reason in the world that ayahuasca centers or I, or shamans in the jungle or any place, you know, as a whole, the number one, uh, reason for harm or problematic stuff is that a guest will harm another guest physically during a ceremony. That's the number one sort of issue that occurs. That's never happened here, thank God. Number two, the second most reason is because they're on their back and they throw up and they choke on their own vomit like a drunk person would do in their sleep. That's the number two reason, which is, again, never happened here. And the third reason is because people have a heart condition and they, have, they go into some sort of AFib or some sort of heart thing, which we are monitoring that and we don't allow certain heart conditions to even come here. So the, the, the screening process that we have is, is better than any place in the world because we have to follow the Ministry of Health's guidelines. And there's all these contraindications. So the people that come here are very, I guess you could say, safe people. They're, they're, uh, they're not dangerous people, number one. Number two, they don't have psychiatric issues that would lead them to being um, difficult under those circumstances. And then people that have heart conditions, depending on what that is, they unfortunately can't come to Rhythmia. So that's a big part of our intake process that happens on the phones before anybody shows up here. So the bad experiences that we've had here are more, uh, they're not along those lines at all. They're more about somebody has a, um, a history of severe trauma. And they're they're venting it out and they're processing it out and they might cry a lot or they might scream a bit and they might want to go outside and lay in a hammock, which is totally fine. That's why they're there. Um, and so there can be this sort of outburst of uh, emotion, which again is healing and part of the process, you know?
1: Yeah. And so like maybe it was like hard or difficult in the ceremony, but they leave feeling like so much
0: Relief. those are the people that I know the next day are going to have the best day of their life because they've got <laughs> a ton of baggage yeah it's always yes. like that
1: <laughs> yes and I do want to mention like anyone like freaked out when you said throw up like it is it feels so good it's like it's not like you're I don't know it's just a different type of
0: yeah it's an emotional release yeah it's getting rid of all kinds of trauma it's it's good it's a good thing
1: yes and so what I guess are process of integration if you're doing breath work or if you're doing um ayahuasca or plant medicines what's what's that what do you recommend
0: i recommend um having a daily practice and it can be something short maybe just five minutes a day something where you plug into yourself and connect with yourself walking the dog can be a daily practice there's no rules to it it's just something that is about you and plugs you into you for me it's going to the beach and going surfing that's my daily practice. For others, it's meditation or yoga or spiritual mind treatments, prayer, good music. There's a lot of things that are a daily practice. So that's important to do every single day, even for just five minutes. That's a big part of integration. Another part is to eat healthy and to eat clean. That's a big part of this. Avoid drugs and alcohol. And if people drink alcohol, it's to do it in, in very careful moderation because uh, that can lead to all kinds of health issues as well. And having a, um, a connection with similar minded people, which can be hard depending on where you live in the world. So we have a Facebook group that we put each week into a unique group for their week. So people can stay in contact with each other and we can stay in contact with them. And so that's a big part of it. The community is is really important for integration. And some people, um, for whatever reason, they enjoy therapy and they did well in therapy before arrhythmia. And we refer them right back to their therapist if that's something that they enjoy and is helpful to vent out things and have a sounding board. And we're all we're all for that. So we we believe that there's a a variety of things that can be helpful to people for integration, and it, it's it has to be tailored to what what they're available in their area and what they're willing to do. But integration is a, is key to this whole
1: thing. Yes, and do people um. I mean, I'm coming back, so <laughs> but like, do often people come back? Like, what does that look like doing it again?
0: 30% of our guests come back. Yeah, 30, 30 to 40% come back. And the reason for that is because once they leave, they cleared out all this garbage from their life and then life starts to happen again. And there's problems and events and things and there's sadness and normal life stuff. And they come back for a dusting off just to kind of get plugged back in. That's one reason. Another is because they love the community, like I mentioned. They like the people. They often have reunions where everybody will say, "We're going to come back on this week." And then you know, not everybody can do it, but they come back to connect again with their friends and people they met here, or they meet new people. Also, um, we've seen, which is really interesting. Dr. Joe Dispenza talks about this to some degree in his own way, and other philosophies think talk about this. But there's this sort of uh, there's this process of these three intentions that can be done three times. So you can see who you've become, you can merge with your soul and you can heal your heart three sets of times. So people come back to do that again and go deeper. They like the knowledge they're getting. They like the connection they're feeling I do it recently. I've been doing it once a week, which is just because I have access. I mean, it's not necessary for most people to do that, (laughs) but because I'm in this environment, I'm working with people on a, on a different sort of level than I was used to doing in Los Angeles. I need to be in the same sort of energetic vibe as them to kind of connect. And also I'm picking up on a ton of sort of emotional projection and baggage that I'm holding and processing with the guests. So for me, Thursday night is about getting that clear so I can go into the weekend and deal with the new guests and have another great week. Right. So it just depends on the person, but people come back for a lot of variety of reasons. You know, those are some of them. Sometimes they bring their family members, you know, their spouse want to bring their spouse or their friends or their kids you know so it's really cool it's to see people like that's what's been happening is like people are just coming back you know so we we know everybody here all the time it's, it's really fun <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes and i guess so you and i know um jerry's done it like what you like 200 plus times
0: at least, yeah, at least, at least. And again, you know, we have access, right? So it's a little different. And and also we're guiding this company based on what happens in our intentions in the plant medicine. So Jerry in particular. So at the beginning, when we didn't have this place open yet, him and I would do plant medicine journeys and have sort of business questions. And we were guided towards a certain way to do things. And that's what this place is. This is a plant managed facility. And so <laughs> we're just like the conduits to have this kind of come through. Um, We're not unique, special or anything like that. We're just people that are open to this process and we're fans of the plant medicine, right? So we're, we're being guided by this a bit, not a bit, a lot on how to run this facility and have this, have this happen. So we're very connected to this process and I can say that it's really helped my life. It's helped my marriage. It's helped my relationships with my family. It makes me, uh, I'm happier. I'm a better dad. Like I'm, I'm less likely to go down a road of negativity. I'm I'm not as angry as I used to get real quick. So it's just there's all kinds of really nice benefits to to living in this sort of space.
1: Yes. And I guess so do y'all go in with questions like for people who are like I just want to know should I do this job or like um yeah. why why but, do intense or sorry, I'll let you speak.
0: Yeah, no, yeah, that's a great question because Everybody tends to show up here with a couple intentions at least. And like, yeah, like, should I take this job? I'm separated from my spouse. Should I go through with a divorce? You know, different things like that. And what we tell them is, okay, those are, those are great intentions. No problem. But start off with the three we said, because once you get those three met, you're going to have so much clarity. You'll know exactly what to do. And all those intentions that you have will just like, you'll just rattle them off very quickly because you have the clarity you're plugged into yourself you know what to do so it's kind of like you can have both but we we recommend starting with those three that we that we teach people
1: that makes so much sense so like connecting with your higher self your intuition so that you know you can answer any question because you're coming from that whole place
0: exactly yes
1: yes oh this is so good thank you so much um, yeah you're welcome <laughs> one other thing i wanted to ask you about was impacts uh, you, yeah, that was so helpful. <laughs> yeah that was so helpful for me and I know so many people listening have these qualities and yeah if you could start with like what is defined as an empath
0: yeah well there's a lot of misinformation about empaths you know there's a lot of techniques that are taught to so-called empaths that are ridiculous so <laughs> <laughs> so I want to talk from about my experience with people that are empaths and me being one as well and so what what it is what an empath is is someone that can actually feel the emotional energy of another person or an environment. They can actually pick up on it and feel it themselves. So that's the difference between empathy and sympathy. If I see a homeless guy and I have sympathy for him or her, I just know that sucks. And I, uh, I hope that they don't have to be homeless and I can understand intellectually that that's not fun. But if I have empathy for that homeless person, I actually feel their pain and their sadness and their despair. I feel it. And I might start to cry and I might start to have an emotional response, right? Because I'm feeling it. So an empath is somebody that feels things, is very sensitive to their environment and to other people.
1: Okay. And so what tools, if like if you're taking on so much of other people's energies all the time, what does that do? How does that manifest in your body? How does that manifest in your behaviors?
0: Yeah, well, I call um, eventually get to a a place where they're flooded. And So what the reason an empath can get flooded is because when they were five years old, they had to survive a very abusive or abandoning environment. And a five year old doesn't have a lot of tools on how to survive that environment, especially if caregivers are are uh, problematic. They're not teaching the kid much, right? they're probably doing all kinds of crazy stuff. So the kid realizes at age five or six, that they have to it's them against the world. So it's just their own emotional sort of survival. So how do they do that? Well, they remove from their body as a way to look at it, their own emotional process, and they set it off to the side. And that's a dissociative state. So they unplug from their emotions, and then they become a vessel to hold and to pull in and those around them. So the example I give was like, let's say a five-year-old is being abused by a drunk father, as an example. Well, the drunk father might not abuse them every single day and not, might not abuse them all day, but there's moments where it's happening over a five to 10 year span. So what the kid learns to do is unplug from their emotions and become a vessel to absorb the energy of their dad. And they, they can feel what state of mind he's in and what vibe he's in. And if they feel, ah, my dad's in a calm place, I don't have to be perfect or go hide. I can just play and watch cartoons. And then another day they feel, they see the car drive up and they automatically unplug and absorb. And they go, uh Oh, I can sense chaos. I can sense anger. I can sense drunkenness or whatever. Now I'm going to hide. I'm going to be perfect. I'm not going to upset my dad. And I'm just going to like navigate my world like this. And, And it becomes a very powerful tool. It's very accurate. So. Over the years, it starts to develop and become stronger. And the, and the child, who's five is no longer five, they're 12. They've been doing it for seven years. And now they're doing it with teachers. Now they're doing it with friends. Now they're doing it with everybody around them. And it's like super empowering because they can feel what the teacher wants and needs and they can just give it to them or not. But they know, they can feel, they're aware. And then a lifetime of this leads to being flooded. And the reason for that is because empaths start off being empaths because of that reason from childhood for survival. They don't know they're holding this. The healthy way to be an empath is to redirect it back to the person that this is from. But children, obviously, why would a kid know that? They don't even know they're doing it. It's all subconscious. So they're holding the dad's anger. They're holding the teacher's frustration with the rest of the class. They're holding the psychiatric behavior of the homeless guy down the street. They're holding, 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 and they do a lifetime of holding, and they get to this part, part where they're just flooded, and they're, and they're taking meds, they're drinking they're idle thoughts, they're, they're, they're acting out all of this emotion that they've been holding for everybody else. So that's what happens with an empath that isn't aware so much that they are one, or they just don't know how to do it in a healthy way that's, that keeps them healthy.
1: Yes. And so how do we do it in a healthy way if we know we identify with this? I'm like, oh my gosh, that's me. Well,
0: the most ridiculous advice I've ever heard for empaths is to create an energetic wall around you to block projection. Good luck doing that. That's impossible (laughs) because that's not in their nature. That's actually ridiculous because it's like telling me I'm not a I'm not a surfer. It's like, you know, I'm a surfer. I've been surfing my whole life. I'm a surfer. That's what I do. Empaths cannot block anything what they can do is understand what's happening and they can turn it on and a little bit lower off sort of. And the way they do it is they plug into themselves emotionally. So the analogy is there's room for me or there's room for someone else in me. That's the way you can think about it. And if I'm with myself, well, I'm just with me. I know where I'm at. I'm happy or I'm sad. I'm hungry or I'm not. I'm angry or I'm whatever. I know where I'm at. I'm with me. And that prevents the projection because it can't, you're 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 occupied with your own self. So if I choose to unplug and to observe and, and absorb an energy of somebody because they're new, I just met them, or I'm in a strange place and I gotta feel what's going on around here, or I'm walking down the street at midnight and I wanna feel safe, then I can unplug and absorb. But I know it's not me. I know that I'm doing this on purpose. To understand and diagnose my environment and the people I'm around. So then all of a sudden I feel fear. So, well, logically, if I'm feeling fear, I must be scared, but I'm not because I wasn't scared 10 minutes ago. I know I unplugged and I'm absorbing. Oh, that guy over there has fear. Or this is a scary neighborhood. Everybody's in their houses locked doors. I can pick up on what the vibe is that and I know it's not me. So just having that awareness that it's not me, it leaves and it just goes back to the person it belongs to or the environment it belongs to. And then I don't hold on to it. So psychodynamic therapists that do object relations therapy, it's a Freudian model three modality of uh, projective identification and corrective emotional experiences, which is a lot of psychobabble, I know. <laughs> but those are the therapists that are doing this on purpose with their patients. And that's that was the orientation that I learned in school. And people, that are empaths also do it when they know that they're doing it and they can do it in a way that's healthy. Now, the reason why a lot of psychologists become less than normal over their career (laughs) is because they're absorbing problematic, dysfunctional emotions from their patients. And they think that good therapy is just holding it. That's not good therapy. That's called catching fish for people as opposed to teaching them to fish. That doesn't help them. You hold their pain and sadness and depression, anxiety, and they leave the office. I'm so happy. I love my therapist. Well, they didn't learn anything. You're just holding it for them. That's the same thing with empaths that don't know they're doing it. So that's why a lot of therapists, a lot of people in the mental health field kind of spin out into this weird zone eventually with their careers. Now, the psychodynamic therapists that understand this concept, they absorb on purpose to diagnose empaths that know they're doing it. They absorb on purpose to diagnose. Then they understand it. They go, okay, well, I'm not sad. My patient is sad. My friend is sad. My mom is sad. And then I'm going to point it out to the patient. I'm going to point it out to the friend or mom. Are you doing okay? Are you a little bit sad? I can sense something's wrong a little bit. And then, boom, it's off you. It's back to them. And the nice thing about it is, it's not as upsetting that, that sadness as it was when they handed it over to you at first. You've done what's called a corrective emotional experience and you've handed it back to them. Now they don't feel alone in it. Now it's a little bit lighter. So it's a nice thing, but it's not yours to deal with. It's not yours to deal with, it's theirs, but you can support them in their process, right? So that's how you redirect, you, you know it's not you, you point it out to them. Now, if you're in the subway in New York City, you picking up on something, it would be very odd to tap the guy on the shoulder. Are you sad? <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> so you don't have to say it to the people. But you can just know it's theirs or it's somebody's. On this, The sixth train towards Spring Street was a little packed when I used to live in New York. So I, I couldn't tell who it was exactly. But I know it's somebody in here. It's not me. And it just leaves. And that's it. And if you do that as an empath, you won't get burdened or bogged down you won't oppressed or flooded but the key to this whole thing is you have to take care of yourself and mindfully get the residual projections off because at the end of the day of absorbing and diagnosing and redirecting and holding you're going to have a little bit that still kind of lingers so you have to mindfully get it off of you in a way that's part of the daily practice
1: yes oh this is gold and what do you think um, for for that, for the residual? Is there like a just like mentally, like, like,
0: yeah, blend? yeah, like, like, like I said, it could be anything, like what it's like almost what a daily practice is. So if I'm, let's, you know, everybody's busy, right? So there's not a lot of time to like, oh, I'm going to go and do all these th- mindful activities, right? But what you can just do is on your drive home from work, listen to some music and say, I'm getting all this stuff off of me, this anxiety, sadness, this pain, this stuff I held for her or him or them. That environment was chaotic. It's leaving me. It's leaving me. It'll only take a few minutes. It won't take hours. And then you can just listen to the music like you normally would. You have to start off the activity mindful. When I go to the gym, the first few reps of the weights are mindfully getting off. I'm like, that sadness is gone. That depression is gone. That's not mine. And then after that 10 minutes, I'm just lifting weights like I normally would. So it's a mindful activity of getting it off. Anything can do it. Playing music, listening to music, going to the gym, doing yoga, meditating. There's a million ways to do it. They're all effective.
1: Yes. Oh, so this is so helpful. And you gave a really beautiful intention that helped me so much during ceremony. I went to Grand, there's like a fire for people mm-hmm. listening, a grandfather fire who will like take things that you want to like let go of. And I used yeah. your intention to just like Ah oh, good. So could you share that intention if you know what I'm yeah. talking about?
0: Uh Uh-huh. I do. The intention is for anybody that's an empath or anybody, really, this works for anybody. This is the intention. Get off of me all of the emotional projection I've held on to and absorbed from everyone in my life since I was a little kid. Get it off of me. That's the intention. And then when that happens, all of that flooded baggage leaves. And then the first response there is usually fear, because if I was five and I wasn't plugged in, if I was like plugged into myself and not able to absorb, that was a scary place because I couldn't read my dad. So the the way to get rid of being afraid is to unplug back then, right? It's a childhood thing. But what happens in a plant medicine session when you do that and you get this baggage off of you and you're with yourself is that you're plugged into yourself and you think all of a sudden I'm five again. So you're scared because you're you're plugged in. You have to remind yourself, I'm not five, I'm an adult. <laughs> My dad's not gonna get me right now. I'm I'm safe. That fear will just melt away. And then you can do those intentions really fast. They just bang out quick, boom, 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 boom. And then you're totally healed from all this traumatic history.
1: Ah, mm. oh, thank you. <laughs> um and and the fact that you can also use that intention, like you said, like before a breathwork session or before meditation. Yeah.
0: yeah. I do it all the time. I say that, that intention when I wake up in the morning, when I'm driving home from work, when I'm middle of the day, all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And it just becomes routine. And then just things don't stick on to you anymore because you have this new habit of not just holding, but holding for a moment, understanding, and then redirecting. And that just becomes your new way you know, and then you don't, you know, it's interesting. Like the statistic I give masters in social work in the United States are amazing people. They, they went to grad school. They probably went into debt. They went through a a difficult master's program. The masters in social work tend to work with vulnerable populations that are on government uh, subsidies. And those populations tend to have some difficulty, right? That's kind of extreme based on oppression and economic status and all these different racial profiling and all this kind of crazy stuff that's really hard, right? Masters in social work last in the field three to five years and they quit. And the reason for that is because most of them are empaths. That's why they chose that line of work, foster care, domestic violence, inner city drug and alcohol stuff, very tough situation clinically for a clinician, right? Most of them are empaths. They go into these homes and these environments and they absorb this energy and it's so brutal. They're not redirecting it that they, they can't handle it anymore. Three to five years is the average career span of an MSW.
1: Wow. Uh, yeah. And So yeah, offering them this tool that I wish I'm hoping to help spread this. I feel like everyone needs to know this. It's so powerful.
0: And it's practical and there's things you can do to actually not have this happen or turn it on and off if you need to, based on the situation you're in, I used to go to a wedding, and at a wedding you don't know half the people there, and you meet people, they meet the other side or whatever, right and was I was noticing at the wedding what was happening at the end like ten minutes into the wedding and the whole wedding, I was just like this therapist guy counseling all these strangers. I was like, that's not fun for me. I'm not working, I'm not working so I, that's when I was like not aware of this, right. So now I go to a wedding and I'm just plugged into myself. I'm just connected to myself and it becomes normal now. And I can actually socialize and have fun myself as opposed to being the sounding board for strangers on their problems when I'm supposed to be enjoying a wedding. Right. <laughs> yes.
1: Yeah. So, like Specifically for that situation. Cause I feel like I do this too. What do you, what is your, like, how do your conversations change? Or I guess your approach to people that it doesn't invite that, like, yeah, Onboarding
0: well, empaths have four characteristics that green light people that want to project. Now, not everybody wants to project people that have emotional issues that don't know how to deal with them. They tend to be very happy to just hand those over to others, right? A well-balanced uh, person that has their own issues and knows that their own issues is not looking to um, project anything. So it's the people that tend to have, um, what we call personality disorders. Those are like the main group that will project. There's other people that do people go through different times in life that are hard and they don't know how to handle it. So they don't necessarily have a personality disorder, but it's the group that can't handle what they're going through. And they're just looking for a person to give it to. So the four traits of an empath are, by the way, the first three are very cool and don't ever change these. It's the fourth one we work on. So the first one. Is and pastor loving people very nice? They're also caregivers, also nice. They're also, I like to say, they're perceived as emotionally stable, right? <laughs> they are emotionally stable, but I used to say that alone, and people say, Oh, I'm not emotionally, you know, okay, you're perceived <laughs> as such, okay, at least loving, caregiving, you're emotionally stable, all good. The fourth one the boundaries that I have with myself are unclear. So what does that actually mean? Because we all know what boundaries with others are. We all have boundaries with others appropriate. But what are my own boundaries with myself? What that means, how much of my own emotional energy am I willing to invest in meeting the needs of someone else? How much of that am I willing to do? So a good way to understand this is, so I have four kids. Wow, I can't (laughs) I have four kids. Oh my God. Okay. So (laughs) I have a two-year-old and I have a four-year-old and I have an 18-year-old and I have a 21-year-old. Okay. So how much emotional energy am I willing to invest to meet the needs of my two-year-old? It's pretty infinite. It's a lot. He's a baby. He needs that. How much of my own emotional energy am I willing to invest in my 21-year-old who's starting law school? less than the two-year-old of my own emotional energy to meet their needs now the reason for that is because she's an adult she's learning her own way she's getting her own path in life she's empowering herself as an adult as a strong woman in, in law and she's doing this her way now it has nothing to do with how much i love them that's not what i'm talking about like i love them all the same amazingly much but how much am i willing to invest my own emotional energy to meet their needs So sometimes it might be a lot for my older daughter and sometimes it's a little less depending on what she's dealing with and what she's asking my help for or not. It's always shifting and changing, but because I'm aware of my own emotional energy and how much I'm willing to invest, it could be a lot. It could be a little, but it's not unclear. I'm very clear about it. That's what stops the projection. That's what stops it. So people that want to target an empath to hold their pain will be stopped in their tracks once they get to the fourth trait, they see, ah, Ellie is loving. She's a caregiver. I can sense it. She's also very calm and stable. Looks, it's looking good for a projection. <laughs> oh, but wait a minute. She's, I'm sensing that she's very clear with her own emotional energy and how much she wants to invest. Now, obviously, this is subconscious. They're not thinking those words, right? And then that's what stops it dead in its tracks. And they don't project.
1: Mm, that makes so much sense. And so I guess getting like an activity of getting clear on like, yeah, what are you willing? And then are there phrases that you use um, to help? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Like if I'm going into the grocery store, I just check in with myself real quick. How am I doing? Okay. I'm this, I'm that I'm this I'm fine. I'm happy. I'm sad. I'm hungry. I'm whatever. Now I'm with myself. Do I, did I get enough sleep tonight, last night? Am I, am I well fed or well, whatever, what mood am I in? Maybe I feel like being a good Samaritan and hearing the, the produce guy's life story and sadness. Maybe I am in that mood. I can be in, that's okay. Or maybe I'm not, maybe I'm in a rush. I don't want a stranger in line to turn around and tell me their life story. I'm just, I don't have the time for it or the bandwidth. So I'm clear about where I'm at with myself. That's the key to this whole thing. So if we're dissociated as empaths, we're absorbing and feeling and and acknowledging and getting targeted and getting bombarded, but we're also pulling it in to understand. So there's a, a mix. But if I'm with myself and I'm grounded and I know where my own emotional energy is and I'm plugged into myself, I know where I'm at, there's no targeting going on at all. People just walk away. I used to go into when I was younger, being parties or social stuff in college. The craziest, the craziest girl would always come up to me, the most wild out of insane person. I was like, how do I always attract these ones? Right. (laughs) (laughs) But that's because I was open for this projection, this targeting, right? And the minute I got it under control. That that immediately stopped, completely stopped. It was it was actually a, a relief. It was very nice.
1: Yes, ah, oh, this is awesome. Thank you so much. I know no so problem. many people. Yeah, I'm and coming out with
0: a, a book about this exact thing. Yeah, all uh, about in, impact strategies. Yep. it's almost done, and it's gonna detail all this kind of stuff, like how to actually handle it and how to deal with it. And here at Rhythm, I see about four or five empaths a week. And they don't necessarily know they are. They kind of have a hint maybe. I take a special interest in empaths because I believe that empaths, if they didn't exist in the world, the world would already be destroyed because we're like the charcoal that you take when you're poisoned. It just pulls in all the toxicity. It saves the person. That's what empaths are. Empaths are, are keeping the world stable. Now we can't do it at the expense of ourselves. We have to be able to be empaths and heal, and redirect, and understand. It's very important. You can't just take, 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 take. It's impossible. You're not going to last. You know, you're going to, you're going to get suicidal at some point.
1: Yes. And do you see a lot of addiction behavior from empaths?
0: Yes, absolutely. Most, most so-called addicts are empaths.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: And that's a tool that they learned can block projection. That's what that is. Most people tell addicts. I always say so-called addicts, right? Like we'll tell so-called addicts, you're selfish and you don't care about anybody and you're antisocial and you're a sociopath and you're, you're a waste of space. That's the opposite of addicts, the opposite. They're loving, they're impasse, they're emotionally sensitive. Have they gone down a road that they're acting selfish and all of course, of course they are. But the, the origins of their substance abuse is because they're so overwhelmed with the world and so bombarded by projection that they just had to get a break and the break from that was drugs and alcohol and it worked for that for a while but then it of course went south and now it's a health issue (laughs) so absolutely I have a special place in my heart for for people that have addictions
1: yes and it's so crazy just like listening to your story like all of the skills that you had like built up and like and I know you, I think you mentioned even like stuff you've randomly studied that you're like, I don't know what this yeah. will eventually become, but it's like all so lining up to, for you to be in this role. That's like absolutely perfect. Which is-
0: yeah, I was, today I taught a class and I was talking about that exact thing. I'm like, I said, you know, when you look back on your career and you go, I don't know why I was doing that at the time, but, but now it makes a lot of sense, right? That's totally me. Like I studied medical anthropology as an undergrad, ethnobotany, Latin American culture indigenous Latin American ethnobotany. That's what I studied so in undergrad.
1: insane <laughs> how that aligns right now.
0: I just thought it was cool. Like that's, I just thought it was interesting. Like I had some cool professors from Latin America that were experts. I thought, hey, this is a cool degree, whatever. I, that's all I thought, that's it. And, and then I studied at the UCLA Neuropsychiatric Institute doing women's health research. And that's where I learned about the victimization and the trauma. Then I managed OBGYN clinics in Westwood part of UCLA's med center. I learned more about the women's health stuff and trauma and victimization. Then I got a master's in public health. I studied health policy and program development. That's why I could do the licensing down here at Rhythmia because of that. And then I went and worked for the Department of Health of Hawaii. I worked with high-risk Native Hawaiian families. And I learned how the Department of Health works, who licenses Rhythmia from Costa Rica, the Department of Health. And then I went and got a doctorate in psychology and worked with addicts and trauma-based people and acute psychiatric and all the mental health, health issues. And I learned all about the meds because I have to do med management in that, in that field. And so I just learned all the science behind everything. So it's so interesting like how it led to be able to be the, the chief medical officer here at Rhythmia, maintaining the license, keeping the place safe, and making sure guests have the best experience they possibly can
1: yes and this is kind of unrelated like i mean very related but not to necessarily rhythmia but your path of doing that of just like did you just like follow sparks like what would you like even for just like yeah how like that came about you just like felt i guess that's intuition just guiding you
0: yeah and i had some great mentors dr carol browner at the ucla neuropsych she's one of the most famous medical anthropologists in the world carlos garcia he's passed he was the head of the east los angeles community union a family friend guided me into like inner city, Latin American cultural sort of policies in Los Angeles. Uh, Leo Cortez, uh, gang task force intervention guy, works for the County of LA, was my dad's best friend. And I call him my uncle. And there's just amazing people. Dr. David E. hayes Bautista, who's the UCLA's uh, so- Department of Sociology and Public Health. And he's a PhD, a very famous doctor uh, who-, who guided me in the Latin American Studies Department. So I just have these amazing mentors. And prof- Dr. David Knowlton at and he's an anthropologist, and I just have so many great people that, that just mentored me. Ice-T, by the way, uh, Ice-T, the rapper, um, yeah. he didn't mentor me personally, but I went to a lecture of his when I was in college, and he said to all the students in college, he says, don't pretend that you guys are, are from the hood, even though I was. I was a kind of rare. Don't pretend you are, Get up into these businesses, get up into these companies, get into these areas of power and authority where you can get, because you're at an amazing school. We were at UCLA. Get into these places and go off like a time bomb and change the system. And that just freaking hit me like a ton of bricks. I'm like, oh my gosh, that's what I'm going to do. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get into these places of influence, get my doctorate, get my master's, work at these medical places. And then when I see the opportunity, I'm going to go off like a time bomb. So I give props to Ice-T for instilling that in my brain when I was a kid.
1: That's the, the best message. <laughs> and so, yeah, what's next? Like, what is your path now? What's your vision? What's, um, what's going on now?
0: I'm, I'm hoping to, uh, with Jerry and the Rhythmia team, to get uh, where arrhythmia can be, uh, we can have multiple arrhythmias around the world, um, working on getting uh, plant medicine legalized in the countries where it's illegal, which is most countries, <laughs> doing some uh, valid research. that's peer reviewed journal article research and being that bridge between the indigenous world and the Western model that can cause widespread change. Because the bottom line is this, most people, aren't gonna go on a trek into the jungle in Peru or wherever and do plant medicine. A single mom living in New York with five kids is not necessarily gonna go do that. She may, and that would be wonderful if she did. But coming to a place that has the comforts that they're used to and also has the medical background and also the the safety is, is worth its weight in gold to the people. And that's who's coming here. And that's what we see as the future is places like Rhythmia that can do the safety medically and can also address the Western sort of belief system. Because, you know, the the purists say you have to go to the jungle. Well, I say to those purists, do you want people to die in the meantime? Because what's happening in the West is suicide, drug and alcohol overdose, and miserable lives that's what's happening. So if you're telling me that the only people that should have access to plant medicine are those that are adventurous enough, young enough and can tolerate going to the the outskirts of the Amazon basin, well, then I think those people should uh, go climb a tree because it's not, it's not the reality. It's not my patient population. My patient population needs healing right now.
1: Yes. Uh, and anyone listening that is a single mom or moms or like, Rhythmia is, it's the, I just can't emphasize enough. It's the best experience. You feel so comfortable. It's beautiful. Yoga, massages, like the experience itself, it's a week to unplug. It was, even without the ayahuasca, the week itself, the support, the healing that happened was just absolutely life-changing. I stayed for two weeks because awesome. <laughs> I didn't want um, so, yeah, just to leave. Yeah, just to, you know, from someone that's not. Like, arrhythmia. Like I just believe in it so much. So thank you so much.
0: Yeah, we're glad you came. It was it was nice having you here. You did yeah. Really
1: well. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Doctor Jeff. <laughs> yeah. Well, great. Well, so I guess to to close out, is there anything any pieces of advice you have for someone that is has gone undergone trauma or victimization or dealing with addiction?
0: Yeah, I just think you know if if you're unsure about you know your little if you have trauma and, and addiction and, and and you know certain history of of painful things right you're probably guarded and you don't want to lower your guard because when you were when you were vulnerable you got hurt so it's understandable so you're very guarded so i say this be guarded and just get down here look at the TripAdvisor reviews we're the number one highest rated resort in the world on TripAdvisor, which is shocking because we're not that seven star resort from dubai you know what i'm saying <laughs> like we're not those luxury hotels but we have the best customer experience in the world on TripAdvisor. Number one, highest rated. Go check that out and get past your fear because those are all people that came here. They're reviewing this. They're just like you. You can trust the people that wrote on there. You can listen to me all you want. You can listen to the CEO, Jerry. You can listen to us on podcasts and interviews and Facebook lives. But if you're on the fence and you're unsure, just get down here because once you're here, you will relax. This is a blue zone, which is a very healing place. There's only a few in the world. So automatically the vibe is really positive when you get here and the staff are unreal next level. We've had people that are in hotel and restaurant management who say, or like very famous places. They say, these are the best staff I've ever met. So this is a safe place. Just get down here let the medicine do its work. Monday night, if you're guarded, that's okay. The medicine will work with you. And then by Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, you're, you're ready. You're rocking. You're going to get this. So, Trust me, we've had over eight thousand people say the same thing. So,
1: <laughs> yes, and yeah, those TripAdvisor, and that's crazy how how many reviews there are, and, and y'all haven't been open that long. No, it, it's like yeah,
0: <sighs> it's crazy. Yeah, it's really cool. It's a good vibe. You know, it's a lot of momentum happening with Rhythmia. So we're excited to have people come down here, and we meet everybody, and I talk to everybody, and it's just a great experience. You know, for people
1: yes and how can people connect with you or rhythmia if they want to move forward
0: the best way to do it is go to our rhythmia facebook page and on there there's an 800 number to call and book your stay there's also a, a form to fill out for a scholarship opportunity because a lot of people can't afford to come so we we do scholarships for people so there's a way to fill that out on the facebook also on the website so rhythmia life advancement center you just do a google search and that's on there And so there's all, and the the graphics are amazing and the the technology on the websites and stuff are are really good. And it's just like, you'll, you'll be clearly guided on how to get here from that. And also what happens on my Facebook lives that I do every Monday morning, they get put onto um, the YouTube channel. So if you just type Dr. Jeff Rhythmia and you go on YouTube, you'll, you'll see all the videos pop up and you can also just go to the Rhythmia Facebook page, which is where those are too.
1: Oh, awesome. Perfect. And I'll link it in the show notes and um yeah and i did want to ask you your book do you have a title is it for when it does come out
0: empath strategies
1: empath strategies
0: yes and it'll be coming out pretty soon um i'm stuck on like the last chapter and a half just because i'm busy not because i don't know what to say i'm just busy (laughs) (laughs) so i'm working on it it'll be done soon hopefully next couple months
1: great well yay well thank you so much dr jeff this was awesome
0: Thank you. It was nice talking to you. It was you very too. fun. I'm, tell your audience, Jay, come down anytime. We're happy to have you.
1: Yes.